The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. The United States' founding involved a major inconsistency. Statements from our founders that the nation was founded on freedom versus the reality of human slavery in many of our states. After being brought to America as slaves, blacks in America were treated as second-class citizens or in some cases nearly in slavery for almost a century following emancipation. This immoral treatment is inexcusable. Yet how should we view the blight of this peculiar institution of slavery? Was it an integral part of America's capitalist economic system? Or was it a remnant of earlier times, like say feudal economic systems? A new book argues that America's market economy, far from being the subjugator of black Americans, actually helped raise them out of poverty and, and oppression. Furthermore, the injustices were a product of us failing to consistently enforce the rules of the market. Joining me on eConversations today is one of the authors of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Dr. Rachel Ferguson. Dr. Ferguson teaches business at, the Concordia, at Concordia University in Chicago, and she holds a PhD in philosophy from St. Louis University. She also serves as director of the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia. Welcome to eConversations, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Well, to get started, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit uh, about like what your uh, your, your book, which is co-authored with uh, Marcus Witcher from uh, uh, Huntington College, who's a historian. Tell us a little bit about uh, what your book covers, and then we'll get into some of these uh, in intriguing and, and uh, challenging arguments you offer. Yeah, so what we wanted to do was really gather together into one place so many of the amazing insights that we think classical liberals and classical liberal scholars have had on race and discrimination over the years. Um, it's We're not necessarily associated as classical liberals with being you know, the go-to people on questions of race and discrimination, but in fact, uh, there's a ton of really, really good literature and uh, and even practical uh, fighting you know, in, in politics and in journalism from uh, the classical liberal tradition that we thought really needed to be collected together so that people could see the resources that classical liberalism offers the um, conversation around race and discrimination in the history of the US. You use the term classical liberal, but I just wanna make sure, you know, let's explore a little bit or tell our viewers a little bit, like what exactly do we mean by, by classical liberalism? Because that really was in many ways, probably the, the founding political ideology of our, our founding fathers. Yeah, I would say the founders are a, a mix of classical liberalism and republicanism. Um, so there's that republican uh, tradition of self-government. But classical liberalism is sort of the political philosophy, right? And so we keep it really simple in the book. We talk about three major legal institutions, uh, private property, freedom of contract, and an equal protection of the rule of just laws. And so uh, you need this as a grounding for the other two sort of values, one of which is the value for the um, incredible flourishing that can come about through the free market uh, and free exchange. 
And then the second one is what every free society needs, which is a very thick civil society. So you need a lot of civil society institutions. Um, these are going to be all of your voluntary uh, interactions that aren't either, you know, your job or the state, right? Uh, everything else that you do, which of course makes up most of our lives. Uh, some of the most fundamental institutions of our lives, like family and church, are, uh, are, are institutions of civil society. And so if you think of those three legal institutions and those two sort of values, I think that's a good way of summing up what we mean when we talk about classical liberalism. Okay, now by contrast, uh, some people, there's certainly there's some, uh, uh, one of the essays in the New York Times uh, 1619 project, and that was drawing on some research by historians who have argued that there could be, that, that uh, there's a, a strong link between slavery and American capitalism. And at one level, you know, as a, as a, just a viewer out there trying to make sense of all this, I mean, Yes, if, if you know a little bit about the American economic history, you remember like, okay, we had plantations that were employing slaves and they were producing things like tobacco and, and cotton and sugar that they were selling on the market. So it certainly seems like on the, on the surface, okay, these were like early like types of factories. They were, that, that's part of the, the capitalist uh, market uh, system. So I mean, th there, there could be some kind of plausible uh, link here, here between uh, you know, the, the plantations of the South that used slavery or after the Civil War, some, some relations that you talk about that are pretty close to, to, to slavery, um, and, and then a market economy. But you've also talked about freedom, and, and so as a, a central part of markets. So if, if you can explain a little bit uh, how, how it really is the case that there is more tension here between capitalism or free markets and, and the institution of slavery. Yeah, so I mean, actually, this goes all the way back to the founding of classical liberalism. So you see figures like Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill. These guys are all abolitionists. Um, one of their ideas is that, well, they have a couple, they have the moral argument and the economic argument, right? And so the moral argument is that the property that we have in ourselves is the most fundamental form of private property because it's what gives rise to everything else. So our ability to control the sale of our own labor is such an important part of what it is to have a free market. And so they're great defenders of the rights of every person to sell their own labor. But they're also saying that there's something deeply inefficient about slavery as well. Because of course, if you exclude any population from the ability to, for instance, learn and improve their human capital, move to where their uh, labor is most needed, um, invent things and be able to develop those things through entrepreneurship, et cetera. If you exclude a whole population from that, then you will lose everything that you would have traded with that population. And one thing that we often forget is that plantation owners hated capitalism. <laughs> they associated the term capitalism with the industrial North. They actually called it kind of the cold cash nexus, right? You get almost this Marxist language coming from them because they see themselves as aristocratic sort of pater familias, right? Um, kind of like fathers, you know, that are taking care of these lesser beings. They, they thought of slaves almost as children. And so they really saw themselves in feudal terms and they wanted that kind of life. So oftentimes they were not particularly profit driven. Uh, a lot of plantation owners, of course, they made as much profit as they needed to, to keep going to survive. But, but uh, there were a lot of efficiencies that they did not take advantage of because they wanted that laid back sort of aristocratic lifestyle. Um, there were a lot of uh, infrastructure, for instance, in the South was very, very far behind. They didn't build a lot of roads and things like that because you might only need to go to market once a year. And then they were using really backwards forms of technology 
like a hundred years after they needed to be. So for instance, you saw in the South using, you know, hand-to-hand -hand manual labor to move water, for instance, a hundred years after the steam engine had become normalized. And so the use of human labor actually made the economy more backwards. Um, the plantation owners got rich, although they got no richer than the Northern industrialists did. But the rest of the economy did not get rich. And the important thing to notice, especially when you listen to people like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, is they're saying that the difference between a market economy and other economies where people can get rich is that in a market economy, regular people get rich, right? Regular day laborers are way better off. Their incomes go up. And that's what you didn't see in the South. So you saw a lot of white wage laborers, their laborers, their uh, wages were bid way down because they were competing with slavery. Many of them just moved to the North. Uh, so there was huge emigration because the economy was just bad and uh, for them, right? And so what you didn't see was a, a big middle class. And when you're in a true free market economy, you're gonna see a big middle class. What you saw was a very few rich families that were plantation owners and everyone else was extremely poor. And of course, the other thing that the um, early free market economists did is they took everyone's preferences into account, including the enslaved, right? And so when you're thinking about how efficient an economy is, you have to think about and count the preferences of those who are being oppressed. And those who are being oppressed, of course, couldn't achieve their preferences at all. So that's a major, major count, even just from an economic perspective, setting morality aside against it. So what we see is that the morality of freedom flows right into what we call the great enrichment, right? The fact that people can do really, really well in terms of human flourishing under a market economy. The two are very interwoven. You, know, you mentioned uh, uh, our property, you know, the, the Adam Smith and others talk about our property and ourselves. And, and I think that's a good point to, to elaborate on a little bit because many people think that many times there's a, a contrast between property and then like human rights. That property rights are somehow less important than human rights. But if you see us as ultimately the thing that we have the first and foremost property in is ourselves, then you sort of like see sort of a link between the other things we own and our ourselves, our lives, our our, our, hu our basic humanness. And then like uh, once you view it this way, you don't, you never really see a, a strong distinction between property rights and more fundamental human rights. Yeah, I mean, Frederick Douglass is actually a really good example of this. Um, he was allowed at one point by his um, slaveholder to um, go and make contracts himself for his own labor, and then he would be paid, and then he would have to go back and hand that money to the slave master, and the slave master might allow him to keep, you know, one little little dollar or something out of the nine dollars or something for the week, and and it actually taught him to love freedom that much more, right? It he said it almost like whipped up his zeal for freedom because he was the one making the deal, he was the one doing the work, he was the one gaining the skills, and yet he had to walk. Watch his his wages go right over to someone else, and it was such an insult to his humanity. So you can see there the connection between himself, his labor, and his wages, his property, right? And how uh, offended he was by the fact that he had to give that away, and he had to escape that. And then later on in his life, he was very offended by the way that a lot of unionists would use the term uh, wage slavery. Right. And he would say, oh, no, 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 no. Wait a second. You know, if you get your wages and you can get up and go somewhere else, even if you've got a tough job, you can't do not call that slavery. OK, I know what slavery is. Slavery is when you have to hand your wages back. Right. 
Well, okay, and now that gets into the, uh, you know, this important tension that uh, there clearly is. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote very stirring words in, in the Declaration of Independence. And we know they were stirring because they uh, inspired so many, not just Americans to fight for their, their uh, freedom from England, but uh, so many uh, revolutionaries in, in other countries and other times uh, fought for you know, freedom based on, on Jefferson's words. And yet at the same time, Jefferson owned slaves. And so this creates this huge tension and uh, you know, the question of like, well, which is really more sincere? Which is really, you know, which of these is sort of most fundamental? Um, were the words of the Declaration just some kind of propaganda or excuse for why we were rebelling against England and slavery was what they were really all about? Or were, were the words of the, the Declaration of the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights uh, fundamental? And, and you mentioned uh, Frederick Douglass, and so uh, that, that provides a way for us to try to uh, evaluate his, his take on all of this, because I thought that was very uh, illuminating in your book. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to the founders themselves, I think it's really important to point out that we have several founders who are the, actually the heads of abolitionist societies. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was was deeply involved in, in uh, abolitionism, as well as John Adams. Thomas Jefferson himself admits that there is a real um, conflict here between a free society and the institution of slavery. He thinks it might actually be the downfall, eventually, of the republic. Uh, he makes that very clear. He says, we've got a wolf by the ears, right? We can't keep it. We can't let it go. It's, it's, he, he felt really trapped. And when he hit the 1820 Missouri Compromise, he said, this is the beginning of the end, right? And so there was actually, I think, deep in the hearts of even the slaveholding founders, which is hard to imagine, right? Because that's a lot of deep inner conflict. But they actually knew that this wouldn't work. And I think they felt the weight of having it uh, as a holdover from a more feudal time. I mean, for instance, Jefferson includes in his first edition, right, of the Declaration of Independence, his complaint against King George for saddling them with, with the institution of slavery. And then Franklin makes him remove it because he knows that the Southern uh, representatives won't approve it. But I think they knew fully that they were compromising. And they also believed that slavery was possibly could end um, naturally, economically. And actually, th that they weren't so far off, in fact. That might have been possible except for the invention of the cotton gin, which made slavery efficient again, or efficient at least from the viewpoint of the southern plantation owners. And so uh, they thought maybe the next generation will do it, right? Uh, and then it, it turned out not to be the case. And so there's much more tension in the founding years than what we see later. And we actually spend time talking about the rise of the idea of slavery as a positive good. This is, this is language you don't hear until like 1829. It's quite late in the conversation. And it comes up because of all the pressure from the Northern abolitionists. There's so much abolitionism happening that the Southern plantation owners feel a need to start coming up with new justifications of the institution. They used to just say it was a necessary evil and kind of call it a day. Um, but they started trying to come up with stronger justifications as time wore on. And so I think you can see that really strong tension when you dig down into the actual history. So when Douglas escapes slavery, he first comes under the the influence of William Lloyd Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison is, is a total free marketeer. I mean, he wants to end every tariff house in the world. You know, he's like a very extreme free marketeer. And for him, it's all part of his Christian nonviolence. And so he actually kind of condemns the Constitution because it's true that it was a, a compromise with slavers, right? They were kind of careful not to mention the term. 
in the, in the document, but they they still made concessions to allow it. And so um, he he wants to condemn this compromise. But what happens with Douglas is that he reads the work of Lysander Spooner, another great libertarian thinker. And Lysander Spooner says, no, we should read the Constitution like a contract, right? We should read it as its words express. We should hold the government to the word, the actual wording of the contract. And Douglas begins to change his mind and finally says that he thinks that the Constitution itself is actually a great liberty document. And it's the problem is not the Constitution, but whether Americans have honor enough and courage enough to live up to their own Constitution. And so, and so Frederick Douglass became a great classical liberal who really wanted, he says at one point, please just set us free and leave us alone, right? But of course, what ends up happening with the black laws in the South and, and the rise of Jim Crow is that black people were not left alone. They, they were not given just the simple privileges of the rule of law, but rather cascades of municipal and state laws were put into place in order to keep them separate from the white population and out of uh, many professions and, and other, other forms of oppression. And so um, he was very disappointed by that, but he always felt that if they had just been given the chance that everyone else had in the United States, that they would have done very, very well. Now you mentioned, you mentioned this in, in the book, and I think it's an important point to keep in mind. Like, um, the United States had to grapple with the issue of slavery, but the United States was not the only place, uh, the only country in the world where, where slavery existed in the 1700s. Um, and, and there were also things like indentured servitude that uh, involved people in, in relations that today we would look like and, and say like, well, that's awfully close to, to slavery. So if, if you could tell us a little bit about this thing like indentured servitude, and, and then there was like this serfdom in, in, in Europe, because I, mean, I think it really sort of provides a very broad historical perspective. Back, you know, a thousand years ago, most of, most human beings were a subject of somebody else. Most everybody was ruled by somebody else. Ultimately, with a king or ruler ruling ruling even the barons, but most most human beings were obligated to work for for somebody else. And we've really had a great transition to that, where you know, where we've, we've really extended freedom far and wide across all, you know, uh, hopefully almost all of humanity at, at this point. So, you know, I, I think that's an important context to keep in mind here. That uh, especially when we're trying to make sense of uh, the American founding and this tension between freedom and, and, and slavery. Yeah, I mean, Brazil actually ends up importing about 10 times as many West Africans as the United States does. Um, many of them actually just died because the forms of labor there were so grueling. And so it is important to understand that context. America is not unique at all um, with regard to slavery, even in, even in that time period. Um, but why is it so hard? You know, why is our history of race so difficult in the United States? And I think part of it is that we promised something different, right? So we fell short of our own standards and because our standards were very high. And so we are uh, accountable to those standards. And then, of course, the regime of white supremacy that, that came about for 100 years after slavery, I think, actually concretized things in a way that um, went backwards in some sense. In a social sense, we went backwards with regard to race and actually became more deeply racist, um, it, bizarrely. And so it took something quite jarring, the, the, the rise of the civil rights movement, to, to get us out of that. If you look at the longer history, I think it's actually quite complicated. 
Um, you know, the feudalism, under feudalism, you don't have anything like straightforward slavery at all, actually. That doesn't arise again until the 1400s. But you do have serfdom. And serfdom is a weird mix of, of um, being tied down and having some rights, right? And so you actually have co a contract with your um, lord, right? The lord of the, the manor. And he, um, you, you owe him a certain amount of your of your goods that you produce, but you also have a right to the produce of that land. So it's kind of a mixed system uh, that I think is less severe and, and in a way moved us in the direction of markets insofar as we started thinking in terms of contracts, right? And so everyone had a certain contractual obligation to everyone else in the medieval world. But we had to defeudalize our markets in the sense of things like guilds, right? And so you had these organizations that set prices, they set techniques, everything had to be made in the exact same way out of the exact same material. You know, whatever the guild was, you had to do it that way and you had to charge that price. And the problem with that is that there's no innovation, right? And so you can't innovate if you're limited by your guild. Uh, yes, you may have sort of a quality control going on there, but you're not going to improve by trying new materials or trying uh, to make something in a cheaper way and then offer it for a cheaper price. And so we had to break down. So, so the medieval period is really a mixed bag. You get some good things out of it, like a rise of a lot of contractual relationships, and you get some bad things out of it, like the guilds. And so you have to break free of some of those relationships in order to get what we have now, which is a situation in which when individual rights are really honored, then you have people constantly innovating. And that's really what free markets are all about. I mean, even the term competition is a little bit of a misnomer because most of what we do in markets is cooperation, right? We're actually cooperating with one another. Competition is kind of a byproduct, right? When I cooperate well with you, then maybe somebody else's product, now they need to improve their quality, right? To keep up. Um, but that's not the reason I go into what I'm doing. I, I'm actually cooperating quite a bit. And then what I'm doing is I'm innovating. And so innovation rather than competition should really be the watchword, I think, when we talk about markets. And what we see in the Black American community is a huge investment in our free market economy. Black Americans are highly entrepreneurial, um, very interested in, in being in business and uh, gaining capital. You see that right away as soon as emancipation occurs. And then you have the amazing stories of people like Madam C.J. Walker, uh, the hair care millionaire, uh, John H. Johnson, the great uh, publishing magnate, uh, Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine, uh, TRM Howard, who opened Black Hospitals. Just amazing stories in one of our chapters where we focus on Black entrepreneurship. And what we see is that, once again, markets and politics are, are interrelated. Because, like, for instance, under Booker T. Washington, with all of his efforts through the National Negro Business League, we see the rise of a middle and upper class Black American group that ends up really being the drivers of the civil rights movement. So they're the ones who are becoming the lawyers. They're the ones who are doing the funding of the NAACP, right? And you simply, without that economic power, they could not have really forwarded their political movement. And so you have to really see the connection between those two. In, in, you mentioned all of the uh, many in, innovations that, that happened in the economy, and, and certainly how while blacks, once they were free, we started to contribute to that. And, and I think in many ways, like uh, economic historian Deirdre McCloskey has, has explained, first off, she coined the term the great enrichment, and, and then also uh, helped explain this as just as like this massive number of small little innovations where people made what they were doing a little bit better, the kinds of things that the guilds didn't allow. And, 
And I think ultimately, I, you know, I, I see a, a great tension between the, uh, the basic humanity that somebody needs to have, their ownership of themselves and their ability to think that they can do things in life and, and which then sets off the great enrichment and, and then the entire practice of slavery because in, in slavery and in the other forms of subjugation that we had throughout human history, the only way to keep somebody a slave in some sense was to make them not realize how fully human they were. And, mm. and, and, and you, you have the, uh, you know, you, you have the, in some sense, once somebody uh, frees themselves, they're not going to be very useful to somebody as, as a slave. They simply won't uh, tolerate it anymore. And I, I think, you know, this is where the, the really, in many ways, you know, the things that we really missed out on because, you know, we, we had this, we had this thought for thousands and thousands of years that the way to become rich and powerful was to force other people to do your bidding for you. And what yeah, we've really seen I, with the great enrichment is, no, it's better to treat them as a human being, as your equal, trade with them, and then see, because you know, then they contribute their intelligence and their creativity to the economic process. And we all end up so much better it, it, tens of, you know, a thousand times better than, than, than we were before when people were just trying to direct a, a, a economic activity and also life. Yeah, and I think we see a twisted resurrection of this historical idea of gaining through control or through exploitation. We see a twisted resurrection of that with the rise of the progressive era. And so in the progressive era, you get this idea that because modern life is fairly complicated, we need to be ruled by experts. And you get the rise of this bureaucratic class of people who decide that they need to socially engineer the way that black and white Americans relate to one another. This ends up being one of the most destructive things to the, to, uh, uh, the black American population in all of our history, believe it or not. And so as you see them emerging from poverty, I mean, between 1940 and 1964, you see uh, black poverty cut in half. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And black Americans are pulling forward. They've got stable families. They're building neighborhoods. They've got a wonderful uh, church tradition that's an, an incredible network for all kinds of civil society as well as business networks. Things are going very, very well. And then what you get is the imposition of things like the Federal Housing Administration's redlining policies. You get the rise of, of the federal uh, highway system, which is set up in such a way as to just tear down these burgeoning economic centers in every major black neighborhood in major American cities. And then you see urban renewal that James Baldwin called Negro removal. Um, I mean, literally just eminent domain abuse left and right with these massive federal projects, millions and millions of dollars deciding that this neighborhood doesn't look the way we think it should look. And so we need to tear it down and build the kind of neighborhood that we approve of. And it absolutely tore apart the black community as it was uh, becoming incredibly stable and productive and pushed it back. And so in the 1970s, you see that improvement in poverty rates absolutely flatten. Uh, it's really, really a sad thing to see. And so we finally got black poverty rates down to about 20% in the 90s, and we're just stuck there. And I think a lot of that really we need to, in a sense, blame that kind of command and control social engineering attitude that the progressives had, thinking that sort of they knew best. They really weren't understanding the information problem, that those who know best are those on the ground, those in the neighborhood who are building their wealth themselves. And we really paid dearly for that. We're still recovering from that in many ways. And 
No, certainly the, I, I think the, the story of your book after emancipation is very much the, the, the fact that you know, we failed to deliver the, the basic rule of law and uh, in, in, in equal treatment under, or under the law and basic protection of property rights and personal rights uh, to, to black Americans. And, and I, I, I think, um, you know, but you also offer a very important uh, example of, you know, even after, uh, after emancipation, end of Reconstruction, and it starts to see the rise of Jim Crow, uh, blacks still had some ability to move. And that very freedom to mm -hmm. move was e enormously important in, in helping to sustain uh, some, some, you know, uh, prosperity uh, uh, for for Black Americans. So you couldn't like completely subjugate them as they were before because they have one freedom. That's right, and they they were able through the threat of moving to another farm or moving from the deep south to the upper south. They were able to bid up their shares uh, quite a bit in the sharecropping system, sometimes as high as fifty percent. And uh, that made a huge difference. Uh, the black economy actually improved at three times the rate of the white economy in the post-emancipation period. And they also made huge leaps forward in literacy, a lot of that coming out of the black church tradition and the desire to read the Bible, right? And so that, that education was a huge piece of the, the progress that they did make. And so I think it's, it's an important point to make that whatever hope they did have in the post-emancipation period, they had due to the private sector, right? Due to their freedom to move. Uh, and, and much of the um, suffering that they underwent came from the state. Well, that's very, I mean, I think this is a very important uh, uh, you know, lesson uh, for, for, for Americans to try to learn. So, I, again, I want to thank you for writing this book. Remember, it, the, the name of it for your viewers is Black Liberation Through the Market. Uh, thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Uh, uh, we'll have your co-author, Marcus uh, Witcher, on, on a future episode to talk some more about this. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 